Hello, and welcome to Disaster Diving. Here we take deep dives into some of the world's worst disasters. I'm Tatiana, and today we will be discussing Aloha Airlines Flight 243. This one sparked my interest in aviation investigations, disasters, crashes. I found it fascinating, and I hope all of you find it as interesting as I did. On April 28, 1988, Aloha Airlines Flight 243 took to the sky for a routine trip between Hilo and Honolulu in Hawaii. With an experienced crew, well-serviced airplane, beautiful weather, and passengers that were used to hopping between islands for business and day trips, no one dreamed that this flight would turn into one of the most notable disasters in aviation history. Here's some background information before we get into the flight. The captain on this flight was Robert, I'm going to pronounce his last name wrong, I'm so sorry, Schornbeamer. He went by Bob, so I'm going to call him Captain Bob. At the time, he was 44 years old and had a total of 8,500 flight hours, 6,700 of which were in the Boeing 737-200, which was the plane for this flight. The first officer was Madeline Tompkins. She went by Mimi, and she had a total of 8,000 flight hours, 3,500 of which were in the 737-200. So they had almost the same amount of total flight hours. She just had half the amount in this particular aircraft type, but they were still both very experienced. She had also been studying for her pilot examinations, so she was very up to date with pretty much any procedure, any piece of information you could possibly think of. The Boeing 737 is a narrow-body aircraft designed for short regional flights. It was designed in 1964, and production started in 1967, with the 200 variant produced in 1968. The 737-200 has an extended fuselage over the previous design, which meant that it could carry more passengers. They were also used to train aircraft navigators in the U.S. Air Force. They were flown for around 40 years, with the final 737-200s retiring from Aloha Airlines in 2008, 20 years after this accident. The aircraft itself had been delivered to Aloha Airlines as a new aircraft in 1969, making it almost 20 years old at the time of the accident. This isn't unusual for airplanes, especially for those short regional hops. If you've ever flown for like two to three hours, you've probably been on a very old aircraft. This was actually the 157th Boeing 737 ever made. At the time, it was common to give new airplanes names, like ships, and it was named, I'm going to pronounce this wrong as well, sorry again, Queen Liliuokalani, who was the last monarch of the Hawaiian kingdom before that kingdom was overthrown in 1893. The plane had accumulated almost 90,000 flight cycles, which was twice the number it was designed for. Again, this isn't uncommon in airplanes. New airplanes are extremely expensive, so generally we try to extend the life of airplanes as long as we can. This often means many of the parts of the airplane are much newer than the plane itself, and the entire process is overseen by a maintenance team that works within strict guidelines, both from the manufacturer and the regulator. So, back to this flight. Earlier in the day, before the plane's first flight of the day, a pre-flight inspection had been completed. This is where either the captain or the first officer will walk around and look at anything that might be wrong with the aircraft. In my experience, the captain usually carries this out themselves, 
as most aviation regulations center on the focus being on the pilot in command of the airplane who has complete responsibility of anything that goes wrong on the airplane itself. So most pilots I know like to do that pre-flight inspection themselves since all that focus is on them. However, first officer might do it too. That isn't necessarily unusual. I'm not sure who did it before that first flight in the day this time. Um, Anyway, at this time, the airline only needed it done before the first flight of the day, not any subsequent flights. So before this accident flight, because this accident flight was the third flight in the day, um, there was no pre-flight inspection. This is different now. Any airline, uh, they do an inspection before every single flight, not just the first flight of the day. At 1.25 p.m. local time, Flight 243 took off from Hilo International Airport with six crew members and 89 passengers. One of those passengers had paused briefly as she was boarding. She saw something that troubled her, and she considered bringing it up to the crew. In the end, though, she decided not to, as they probably already knew. If she had decided to bring this up, the flight of this flight might have been very different. After 20 minutes... After taking off, the flight reached its cruising altitude of 24,000 feet. This is when things went wonky. All of a sudden, the entire front top of the aircraft ripped off of the airplane. People sitting in the front rows were literally looking up into open sky. Even more dramatic, the sides had ripped off as well. So people who were sitting in those front rows were surrounded by open air. You would have to think you were dead at that point. And because the entire top of the aircraft wasn't there, the front nose of the aircraft dipped down slightly as the pressure was causing the floor to bend as it wasn't designed to take that weight. So later, the people on this flight actually said that they thought the cockpit wasn't there anymore. I can't imagine the actual terror you would experience. When the fuselage ripped away, they would have experienced an explosive decompression. When an aircraft at altitude is an airtight, then decompression will occur. This could be gradual, rapid, or explosive. All of those three types are dangerous. Explosive decompression means that air is escaping faster than your lungs can empty. The risk of lung injury is high in this case. Thankfully, they weren't really high enough on this flight for serious injury to occur since it was a short trip, but sometimes explosive decompression can cause people's lungs to explode. Having air forcefully emptied from your lungs still hurts even at a lower altitude, even if your lungs don't explode. The risk from unsecured objects and people flying through the air is huge, and anyone not buckled in is in danger of being sucked out of the aircraft. Here's some passenger accounts I was able to find. Jim Calgariff remembers hearing a deafening roar, seeing the sky and wondering for five awful minutes whether there was still a pilot aboard Flight 243. He was a businessman who had been looking forward to a nap on the 45-minute flight home from Rainy Hilo. He chose a window seat over the right wing and was just relaxing when the Boeing 737 ripped open over the Pacific Ocean. He was 62 years old at the time. He was sitting two rows behind the damaged part of the cabin and escaped with minor injuries. He said, quote, I heard a blast. Really, it was more like a whomping sound. Suddenly, there was a tremendous rush of air and all this trash came flying at me. Stuff got into my eyes and I couldn't see. Instinctively, he tucked his head between his knees and began mentally rehearsing what he would do when the jet went down. Quote, the plane was out of control for the first five minutes, sort of yawing back and forth. End quote. He raised his head a little and squinted through burning eyes. All I could see was sky, he said, 
I didn't even know if we still had a pilot. For 13 terrifying minutes, Kilgareff, who lost a brother in a plane crash several years ago, meticulously plotted his own survival. Quote, I managed to get my life vest on and squinted at the exit next to me. I didn't expect my mind to be working so cool, but I was really calm and collected. I was very concerned about that exit window because I knew it would be my responsibility to open it. The stranger next to him put her hand on his knee, and Kilgareff patted it. Quote, Later on, when we got off, she said, I just wanted to see if you were still there. Because you couldn't tell, the noise was so bad, and you had to keep your eyes closed because of the wind. I had fiberglass in my eyes. I peeked out and could see mountains, so I knew we were going to land. I felt the pilot coming in. It was the smoothest landing I ever had. Another passenger, Stanford Sampson, had just bought a beer and was reading a book on computer software when the plane broke open. And that is a mood. I can't imagine if I had just bought that beer. I mean, this would be horrifying. This would be awful. But I know my thoughts would be, okay, I get it. I'm about to die in a plane crash. This is the worst thing that could happen to me in the air. I understand. My life is over. This is how it all ends. But really, could I have just finished my beer first? <laughs> he said... That's what made me mad. I had paid a dollar for that beer. I just took one sip and it was gone. So was my book. When he looked up and saw blue skies, Samson's first thought was, quote, Oh God, this is the way I'm going to die. I thought about my wife and five kids. I thought we were going to hit the ocean. The plane was bouncing all over the place, and there was a fear that the front section would be ripped apart, and the plane would split in two, and it would be aloha. Samson told the frightened strangers on either side of him to relax again and again during those 13 hellish minutes that seemed like hours before the plane landed. He said later it took him four beers to calm down. Joy Flanagan, in seat 2C, next to head what, what once had been a window, fell forward onto the tray table, her head and face cut by flying metal and flailing wires. Quote, her head was laying down on a tray table with blood all over, her husband said. I could see the sky. I could see the ocean. I was scared to death the wind was going to rip her away. I grabbed her two arms and told her I loved her. I was afraid we were going to crash, end quote. So more on what would have been happening. The warm, humid air in the cabin will immediately turn to vapor as it cools and condenses, filling the aircraft interior with heavy fog, which adds to the terror everyone would have been experiencing. Lastly, this experience is extremely loud, similar to a bomb going off, and the open, rushing air would continue the noise for the rest of the flight making any communication on board, along with radio communication, all but impossible. The one stroke of luck in this case was that it was just after takeoff, and it was such a short flight that all of the passengers were still in their seats with their seatbelts buckled. Otherwise, I do believe we would have seen more deaths. Here's a quote from the 48-year-old Eric Becklin on the flight. I remember thinking about things like, I don't have enough life insurance, but there's nothing I could do about that. And I tried to get some peace with the world, but there was too much noise and too much debris flying around, so that never happened. I was very concerned about the fact that the hole was growing all the time. There was crap just flying around, and then there was a whole section of people that were right below where the hole was opening up. End quote. In the cockpit, the pilots experienced the aircraft do a sudden roll to the left and then the, to the right. Captain Bob later described the controls as going slack. This was actually the control cables being drawn tight over the bend in the fuselage running underneath the airplane, giving the pilots less direct control as they had to fight the controls themselves. They also experienced the explosive decompression and could see the open sky behind them, just over their heads. 
They had no way of knowing how much of the aircraft was still there or if anyone was dead. This is from Captain Bob. Quote, It was actually almost like being in a dream at that point, because it's so unexpected, your mind tries to protect you from what's going on. You're just sort of dazed. I did turn right back around and put my oxygen mask on, as I was trained to. I signaled to my co-pilot that I was taking control of the airplane. The captain decided to perform an emergency descent, as they were at an altitude that humans are unable to breathe at for long due to the lack of oxygen. As he mentioned, he and the first officer donned their oxygen masks to combat any effects of hypoxia. This is when your brain is deprived of oxygen. They diverted to Kahului Airport, and First Officer Mimi controlled all radio communications. However, her ability to decipher air traffic controller responses was extremely limited due to the noise in the cockpit. As Captain Bob slowed the aircraft for landing, he found that the airplane was more difficult to control at low speeds, so he maintained a relatively high landing speed. This was later to be linked to the damaged horizontal stabilizer that had been struck by flying debris. As he grew closer to the airport, his number one engine failed and would not restart. This was also because of flying debris, which both engines had ingested. And his landing gear light would not indicate if the main landing gear was lowered and locked, but there was no time to fly around and for anyone on the ground to tell if it was down and locked. He decided to land despite these problems, as getting the aircraft on the ground appeared to be the top priority at this time. Quote, I was just totally focused on having to make it. I didn't have time to dwell on what would happen if I didn't. You always have to maintain the big picture, and the big picture is to fly the airplane, keep it under control, and at the same time, figure out what you're going to do. This is a quote from the earlier passenger, Mr. Flanagan. Quote, I remember saying, Joy, my God, the guy is still flying this plane. There were wires hanging all around, wrapped around me. I remember yelling, I'm being electrocuted. I really thought I was being burned alive. End quote. If you hear any whining, my dog is dreaming in the background here. The pilots performed an emergency landing. The landing gear was down and locked after all, followed by an emergency evacuation down the slides, all within 10 minutes of when the disaster had begun. I can't believe it even stayed together, said Larry Miller, the 29-year-old assistant station manager for Aloha Airlines at the time. The only thing holding the aircraft together were the floor beams. Everything else was gone. It should not have been able to land. Interesting note, although he was not on the plane itself, him witnessing this crash made him unable to board a plane for many years afterwards. The final count was 65 injuries, eight of them serious. I'm unsure as to how many of these happened in the air as a result of the explosive decompression and how many were as a result of the emergency evacuation. Emergency evacuations always result in injuries because the slides are extremely steep and people hurt themselves at the bottom of them. I know one of the flight attendants was seriously hurt in the air. There was, unfortunately, one fatality. This was a flight attendant, not the one I just mentioned, a different one. Her name was Clarabelle Lansing. She went by CB. After a 37-year career at 58 years old, this was how she died. She was sucked out of the airplane during the explosive decompression, and her body was never found. Quote, this is from Miller, the station manager. Clarabelle Lansing was the nicest old-timer there that knew her customers, her regulars. She called them by first name. She called me by first name. That was something to me. She was a total Aloha customer service. She was the textbook model of a good stewardess. She always had a garden of flowers in her hair, not one or two. End quote. Captain Bob had flown with Lansing many times, and while they weren't that close, he knew she'd form friendships with longtime passengers. Quote, her life was the airline. End quote. 
from passenger plan again again this is what he remembers of how she died she was just handing my wife a drink said william flanagan he was an aerospace engineer interestingly enough he was on the 21st wedding anniversary trip to hawaii quote she had stopped and she had told us this was the last call we were going to be descending and then whoosh she was gone their hands just touched when it happened end quote the injured were taken to hospital in a local tour company's vans since the island had only two ambulances Two of the drivers for the tour company were former paramedics and established triage on the runway. The airplane was considered damaged beyond repair, and it was dismantled on the runway. Now, the first questions when any serious accident happened are, how did this happen, and whose fault was it? My focus is on that first question, how. Placing blame can be important, but it's a question best left for the courts. My area of specialty is human factors and organizational psychology, and that's what I have a master's in. When an accident happens, it's never as simple as a human made an error. If a simple error can result in death or serious injury, then there's going to be complex behind-the-scenes processes that allowed the error to happen. Most investigations done by any regulatory body after an accident focus on those areas that failed. Placing blame has value for victim closure and compensation, but it doesn't stop the accident from happening again. A good investigation will outline steps that, to be taken that will stop the accident from ever happening again. In this case, the investigators, they were from the NTSB, the U.S. National Transportation Safety Board. They found that a fatigue crack had managed to expand around the entire top half of the fuselage. Metal fatigue is a risk factor for all aircraft. Aircraft actually expand and contract every time they take off. Low pressure air at cruising level causes the relatively high pressure air inside the aircraft to push the fuselage of the aircraft outward. The, fusel the fuselage then compresses back inward as the aircraft lands. Factors such as warm climate operations and salty air can speed up the fatigue process. Maintenance technicians and engineers regularly look for fatigue cracks during routine inspections. Boeing also used a cold bonding process for these types of 737s um, in the fuselage, and this process was discontinued in 1972 because it made the fuselage slightly more susceptible to fatigue cracks. This aircraft was produced before 1972, so this process was used for making this aircraft. There is also an alternative theory in this case, or a co-current theory. It's still a fatigue crack that would have caused this, but aircrafts are built with a fail-safe system. In this case, in the event of a large crack in the fuselage, it was designed to rip apart in 10-inch squares. This would still cause an explosive decompression, but would prevent catastrophic structural failure. Catastrophic structural failure. Say that ten times fast. A pressure vessel engineer named Matt Austin proposed that the fuselage failed as designed, but the body of the flight attendant, C.B. Lansing, became temporarily lodged in the opening, forming a pressure hammer that was forceful enough to rip apart the entire top half of the airplane. The NTSB did actually formally recognize this theory but they did not adopt it as the reason for the accident. The lead NTSB investigator for this accident says that the theory deserves further study. Before boarding, one passenger, as I had noted, had noticed the abnormally large fatigue crack close to the door of the aircraft, which had grown in the previous flights of the day. It's sad that she decided not to say anything, as she was under the impression the pilots would have noticed it themselves. The investigation revealed that this crack was a longitudinal fuselage crack along the Stringer S10L lap joint. And honestly, guys, to borrow a phrase from the police, if you see something, say something. 
on an aircraft, you see anything abnormal, just ask about it. Worst thing is that they'll have already noted it and no harm done. <laughs> That's fine. But just if you see something, say something. Like many airlines, Aloha kept their planes almost constantly flying. Inspections almost always took place at night. This is often when maintenance work takes place, as most clientele like to sleep at night, and there are often local noise bylaws preventing planes from taking off or landing between certain times of the night. Nighttime inspections under artificial light are less likely to catch fatigue cracks. Maintenance workers are also more likely to make fatigue-based errors, especially in a budget airline where shifts are less likely to be compatible with our circadian rhythms. There are laws, especially nowadays, regulating the length of shifts as well as best practices for managing fatigue and maintenance crews, but they're not as intensive as they are for pilots. And in the 80s back then, I don't think there would have been any of that, either laws or recommendations. It was just seen as, you know, bear through it, man up, you tired, we're all tired. <laughs> there was also an immense amount of pressure to have every aircraft fully operational and out of maintenance by the morning to start the day's worth of flying. There's still a lot of pressure for that, not necessarily by the morning, although often, um, but a lot of pressure to have it ready exactly when you said it would be ready, even if you run into a snag. Now let's look at the maintenance program itself. I have worked in maintenance departments, but this stuff can take a little bit of understanding, so I tried to break it down very, very simply. I hope I'm clear enough. All aircraft at any airline have to undergo routine checks and inspections by qualified maintenance personnel. These checks are dictated by the aircraft manufacturer, so Boeing in this case. And every approved maintenance organization, an approved maintenance organization is anything that performs maintenance. Um, they have to have a license saying that they're an approved maintenance organization. So if an airline does their own maintenance, they have to also be an approved maintenance organization or an APO. They have to prove to the regulator, the FAA, or Federal Aviation Administration in this case, that they are complying with the manufacturer guidelines. So they'll have A, B, C, and D checks. A checks are quick, relatively non-invasive, and happen at shorter intervals. B, C, and D checks get steadily longer and are more invasive to the point where a proper D check could take a couple of weeks to complete. In this case, Aloha was a small regional carrier running on a tight budget and wouldn't want to take one of its main working aircraft out of the air for weeks to complete a check. So they separated the most invasive D-check into 52 separate working packages, incorporating some of its aspects into the more routine B-check. And to get this approved by the FAA, they decided they would do the D-check once the aircraft had accumulated 15,000 flight hours, that's the hours the plane is in the air, as opposed to the routine 20,000 flight hours. However, what the FAA didn't realize was that the aircraft was flying very short routes over the Hawaiian Islands and accumulating many more flight cycles, takeoffs, and landings than what the manufacturer guidelines had accounted for. So the wear and tear was happening at almost double the rate of an average plane. So really, the D-check should have happened at 10,000 flight hours, and all other checks should have also been halved and done at much lower flight hours. So let's break down the failures involved here. The failure of the pilot performing the first flight of the day to notice the crack on the pre-flight inspection. The failure of the airline to require a pre-flight inspection before every single flight. The failure of the passenger to bring the crew's attention to the crack in the plane, although to be clear, the passenger is a victim here and not responsible. The failure of the last maintenance technician who completed a routine inspection. The failure of the maintenance supervisor during that last inspection to supervise his or her employees. 
the failure of the approved maintenance organization, aka the airline, to put together a competent maintenance program for the airline's flight regime. The failure of the FAA to approve a maintenance program that met the needs of the guidelines issued by Boeing. The failure of Boeing to recommend inspections based on flight cycles, not just flight hours. The failure of Boeing and the FAA to recommend action after a production process that left an aircraft open to fatigue cracks was discontinued. Fixing any of these failures at any point before the accident would have prevented this tragedy from occurring that day, preventing psychological trauma and even saving a life. At no point through this were there evil people involved scheming a way to get around these regulations and, you know, who cares if anyone dies. There was no exceptional illegal business processes. Every decision that was made seemed reasonable and professional. It was made by people wearing suits, sitting in big conference rooms, saying, yes, this seems right. It was made by people with impressive degrees. No one was evil. No one was unprofessional. And yet people died. I also wanted to point out the failure of the Kahului Airport to have an emergency response program that correlated to the largest size of airplane that could land at their biggest runway. Even if they didn't have large planes routinely landing there, it was always an option for an emergency diversion. If the island only had two ambulances, the airport should have had more ambulances themselves and medical personnel on call. So, could this happen again today? My answer is not like this, not in this form. We're much better at detecting fatigue and preventing issues related to it, I mean metal fatigue, and much better at regulating maintenance. However, maintenance fatigue, which is actually people being tired, and nighttime maintenance operations can continue to be an issue, especially with the appearance of so many discount and budget airlines. There's only so many places one can cut corners to make a discount airline profitable, and maintenance often takes the brunt of those cost cuts. Also, that fluid hammer theory was never formally adopted, so there was no recommendations made based on it. Aircraft are still designed to fail in sections. If If something becomes lodged in that section, in a future failure, what would happen? So, where are they now? Captain Bob flew back to Honolulu after the accident, but apparently he didn't go home for over a week because they were told the press would be all over. I don't know if First Officer Mimi did the same thing. She didn't say if she did. The captain said he was barely sleeping in between all of the flashbacks, and Lansing's memorial service interviews the NTSB and a trip to Washington, D.C. to receive an award alongside Mimi Topkins at a pilot's union ceremony. He also said that at the time, Aloha didn't really have a program in place to help pilots deal with trauma. A lot of airlines would have that nowadays, but not all of them. Quote, One of the dangers for people that go through an event of this magnitude is their change forever, really, said Captain Bob. Apparently, he settled a lawsuit with Boeing in 1991 over the emotional stress he suffered after the accident. Captain Bob remained with Aloha Airlines until he retired in 2005. First Officer Mimi remained with Aloha Airlines until it ceased operations in 2008, earning the rank of captain in this time. After Aloha Airlines ceased operations, she moved to Hawaiian Airlines. In 2010, she received an award from the Airline Pilots Association, called the Pilot Assistance Award, given for her leadership in supporting airline pilots who have experienced significant psychological trauma. So not only was she given no help to help her move through this trauma, but on her journey moving through it, she also helped others. I'm completely amazed, and I think she is the kind of first officer, the kind of pilot now that everyone should aim to be. I was able to find something on one of the passengers, uh, Mr. Becklin. He flew home to uh, Oahu. I'm really sorry if I mispronounced that. I'm not very good with the Hawaiian names. The day after the accident, 
and had to decide whether he still wanted to travel to Washington, D.C. that weekend to deliver data. Quote, I was told that the best way to overcome the whole thing was to just get on a plane. That's what I did. End quote. Who at 78 years old now works at NASA aboard the Stratospheric Observatory for Infrared Astronomy, the world's largest airborne observatory. So I'm really happy for him. His life turned out well, it seems. In the aftermath of this accident, Aloha Airlines completed a detailed inspection of every aircraft in their fleet and found fatigue cracks on almost every single plane. Two of the planes were in such bad condition that they were scrapped. So that's all I have. If you want to learn more about this incident, there's a great Mayday or air crash investigation. It's called different things depending on your country. Uh, The show is called Hanging by a Thread, and it's not on any streaming service. So I'm not telling you to go pirate a show, but... It is very easy to pirate, is all I'll say about that. Check out the Disaster Diving Instagram at Disaster Diving Podcast. Send an email to disasterdivingpodcast at gmail.com and check out the Twitter at Disaster Diving Podcast. Thank you very much, and I will see you next week with more disasters.